Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. So I think we're probably at one o'clock. So um, hello and welcome everybody to one another one of our practice manager webinars. We're always pleased to see you and we're so, so impressed. You've spared the time to listen to us or watch us if you're here live. And we know it just could not be busier. Um, this is our last practice manager webinar of 2022. Um, and it will be recorded as ever, audio podcast if you prefer to listen or listen again. So we've got our um, usual classic team of um, Lisa Harding and Michelle Lombardi, our directors of primary care, and Dawn Childcraft, our Deputy Director of Primary Care. We're particularly delighted that um, Drs Laura Edwards and Andy Perbrick have with us too, our joint CEOs. And a particular Christmas bonus welcome to uh, Dr. Richard Van Malartz, who's come um, to us to talk about. He's um, so uh, Richard is a London-based GP from and uh, deputy chair of the GPC. And we we made contact with um, Richard just recently about a safer working. And um, Richard um, did a podcast with Ed Wendell, one of our medical directors, which some of you may have listened to, which has been really useful. So we're going to start today with just saying welcome everybody and thank you very much for joining us and actually it just feels really really tough we've obviously got the um strikes the strep a lots of illness with um patients lots of illness with staff on top of everything else that feels mm, pretty pretty tricky and um, to manage at the moment so I, we're just going to have an open discussion really with um, richard laura and andy to say how is it currently feeling what can we do and um, yeah, where what might we go from here? We're not going to solve things, sadly, but hopefully we'll be able to chat through a few things and perhaps give a little few pointers. So um, I don't know, Richard, if you'd like to just start saying how it feels for you on the ground at the moment. Sure. Well, well thanks ever so much for having me. Um, so it's it's pretty grim, isn't it? Um, you know, this is a tough time of year. And then we've got group A strep and not only those children that are ill with it, but the anxious parents who are bringing their kids along and all the sort of the work we've been doing over the last couple of decades about antibiotics all of a sudden seem to have gone out the window and so that that sort of demand is through the roof and then the industrial action being undertaken by colleagues elsewhere in the system will no doubt be having an impact as well and i think that's that's reflected across the country and and general practice isn't in a brilliant place to start off with we're off the back of a pandemic um a, a recruitment uh, and workforce crisis and you know i i bet that everybody who's uh, who's on the call today is feeling a bit punch drunk and a bit fed up, really, with it all uh, in in the run up to Christmas and bank holidays, which you know I don't think any of us quite particularly enjoy the bank holidays because it not so much work onto the next few days. So it's it's pretty hard out there. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know whether Laura and Andy sort of could reflect on any particular sort of how it how it's like, particularly in Wessex at the moment. I think Andy, you can describe your your day yesterday. <laughs> Yeah, it's the worst I've seen in 22 years in general practice. I feel utterly broken after a day in general practice. And the team see me come here on a Tuesday after my Monday in the practice. And I feel completely spaced out. And, and to be honest with you, I dread going back in on Friday when I know it will be similarly hellish. I think I saw uh, 41 patient contacts on Monday. Um uh, and my morning surgery merged into a rushed visit to see a palliative patient then merged into my afternoon surgery. Uh, and I worked eight till eight without stopping, uh, without lunch, without anything. And that's been replicated across the patch. Uh, and I wasn't the first person to leave the practice. Uh, sorry, I wasn't the last person to leave the practice on Monday. So it just feels 
totally unmanageable and unsafe uh, and it feels like NHS England are not supporting us. Uh, what I would say is that our negotiations locally with the integrated care boards, actually the ICBs really do want to do things to try and support us and they were all for completely suspending COF uh, and leses and deses and it's actually NHS England that have said to them, no, you can't do that and we will not bail you out financially if you do do that. So they've come up with what they can conceivably um, concede to at the moment, but we've had a meeting with some of them again today to say, actually, you need to go back on a regional level to NHS England uh, and have collective strength to say, no, we need more support for, for general practice. But the other thing that I, I guess that's demoralising for for staff in particular is this perception that the focus yet again remains on secondary care. So we've had communications about unprecedented attendance at A&E. Uh, and I, again, I pointed out to the commissioners that this is a system pressure, not an individual pressure. We're part of an integrated care system now. We need to avoid this siloed perception that one area is getting all the workload. A&E has always been funded to have a degree of minors attend it. Their workforce has increased exponentially. And when you look at the increase in any workforce compared to GP workforce, it's huge. Um, and if we were to badge every item of work that came into primary care that could have been seen in secondary care, we would equally be saying that actually we need to divert this work back to where it should be. So this, this simple perception that a&E is flooded with inappropriate primary care work is not an accurate assessment of the fact that actually within the system, patients are turning up in the wrong places and there's huge inefficiencies and we work, we need to work as a system to actually get patients to the right place at the right time. So, yeah, I would say that I am feeling the pain uh, and I wish I had a simple and easy solution. What I would say is putting safe working into practice is easier said than done as well because we all have a moral feeling that we can't turn away that sick child or or if we do turn away that one sick uh, patient that didn't seem so urgent it comes back to bite us I think what we can do though is reprioritize what we do so we we've been saying to commissioners you know, routine work and non-urgent work has to take a back seat we will focus on urgent access at the moment, but you need to support us in any catch up moving forward. There are also huge elements of what we do on a day to day basis that's bureaucratic nonsense and that needs to be removed from us. Uh, and um, we start have we will start having to play hardball when it comes to being asked to do other things, you know, things like sick notes, that sort of thing. Eventually that has to be taken away from us uh, to free us up to meet the urgent demand that we're faced with. Yeah, that's, um, it's not a happy place, is it? Um, and that's, that sounds really tough. And then with that 41 contacts you had, so I was in my practice yesterday, again, eight to eight. Um, and now, I mean, what we're, what we've referred to there a couple of times is sort of the safer working stuff that we've been trying to, we've published and uh, sort of trying to encourage practices to have a look at um now the number of contacts you have a day is really relevant because if you're getting up to 41 that's your decision making on your 41st patient will not be as good as with your first patient uh and now that's not because you're not 
a great GP, Andy. As you say, you've got 22 years of experience and that sort of thing is what does keep your patients safe. And it, you know, it's, to, it's to your own personal detriment. And this is the thing, all of us in our practice, all the GPs, all the practice nurses, management staff, reception staff are slogging their guts out to their own personal detriment in order to make sure that we keep the wheels turning. Um, what we need to be trying to do is finding a way of actually enabling us to be safe as well as our patients to be safe and getting our contacts down to 25 to 35 per day. It has been shown to be safer uh, sort of levels, um, safer for patients because we're not going to start making perhaps uh, less effective decisions with those last few patients and safer for us because Andy's not going to, or I'm, or Laura, or any of us are not going to come out of our practices feeling like our brain's been turned to jelly. Um, and and with, you know, the number of colleagues that are burning out and the number of colleagues, unfortunately, who are coming to significant harm by virtue of their mental and physical health, uh, which I'm sure we've all heard about, is is significant enough that actually making some changes is really important. Now, as Andy says, how do, how we do this and how we do it and keep patients safe is really important because we're all terrified about that one instance. And everybody keeps saying this to me. What about that child that you turn away who goes away and has a very adverse outcome, dies or something dreadful like that? Because, you know, would, would the coroner or, you know, would, would, would we be able to look in the mirror, look at, our, look at ourselves and, and say that we'd done enough in those kinds of instances? And, you know, I think that there are there are things that we can be doing. And one thing that I keep coming back to again and again is triage, how we triage our patients and how strict we are with our triage as well. Now, in that podcast, I had, uh, had a really good discussion with Ed about this, and he was talking about a, um, a form of triage which becomes stricter through the day so that those those sick kids that f- their parents phone in at half past four once school out they still get seen but that person that phones up with their um fungal toenail at four o'clock is 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 rated differently and doesn't get seen immediately and you know looking at how we prioritize within our practice and prioritize what is an increasingly precious and scarce resource that we can provide for patients i think is important i'm just working on some documents which are going to come out in the new year from the bma on just this and how we can how we can be doing more effective triaging in our practices so whether it be with a a gp well-trained care coordinators or even ai and it solutions to enable us to do that kind of thing because we can't we can't be everything for everybody all the time there's just not enough of us um and and actually reducing our appointments a little bit uh, in order to keep us safe will actually improve the quality and actually improve the you know, if, if you compare reducing the appointments that Andy offered, so say 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 offering thirty one instead of, or thirty five instead of forty one, bring it down by ten or fifteen percent. Actually, if Andy or any of us get to the point where we can't keep working, um, and you know have to take a period of time off sick. Oh, I think um, you might frozen there, Richard and Laura. Do you want to carry on? I can probably end that sentence. So yes, if they go think. off sick, then they don't see any patients, and actually that's. 35 patients a day that are not there's no capacity to see from from that individual clinician so you've got lose-lose and those six that you didn't see you know per day actually you know the the numbers suddenly diverge don't they if you're losing 35 per day um instead so I think one of the things is um Andy was talking about 
<laughs> the pressure, which is just feels unbearable, actually. Um, where do you find the headspace to think through? We, we like the safer working ideal. How, how can we think about what the number would be and, and where do we go from there? What, what, what would you start to do? Because it feels like you just you haven't got the headspace now and you're not going to have the headspace in the next you know, month or so. I think the danger is you just try, you continually try and increase and increase and increase capacity. And we all know that the more appointments you offer, the more demand you generate. So it's about starting with the basics, informing your patients about the pressures, giving them the alternatives. So Wessex Healthier Together website for, for children, the NHS website. Uh, but also us as an organisation working with the system to say we need to protect a scarce resource. So one of the reasons why our phone lines are jammed is not because it's all patients trying to get appointments, it's patients trying to deal with queries relating to social care and secondary care as well. So actually, if we can free up some of that and, and get those patients going to the right place at the right time, we can free up some of the scarce resource we've got. You know, And the number of patients I see that are coming back for the third or fourth time about the, something that I've already referred them with, that's huge inefficiency in the system. You know, patients coming to me because the ambulance service have seen them said there is no medical reason to go to hospital, but there's a social care issue. Go and see your GP to get it sorted out. Well, no, yeah, it's social services, not the GP. So we need to get the system messaging right to say, we've got scarce resources across the system. Let's get the patient to the right place at the right time. I think with the practices, it's about having the strength to say, we have finite workforce. We've got a finite number of appointments that we can use. We're not going to turn away absolute emergencies, but we're going to have to prioritise who, who has those appointments, as Richard says, because we, we aren't a bottomless pit. There's a couple of interesting comments that have come in. And I think, um, so the first one is just really sad. So many of the team are on the verge of tears all the time. It's so hard, um, which just reflects what we've been saying earlier. Um, another comment about stopping routine GP work to increase urgent care capacity is really hard. Routine is really routine. It's necessary work. We know from when we stopped routine work in early COVID, it's taken so long to catch up. And then, of course, there's a media backlash. Yeah. And how, so the comment is, how do we do this effectively? How do we do this? Um, I think, yeah. Yeah. And, and the, just the comment is, our only realistic option is to create a hot kids hub with physician associate and nurse practitioners. So, so that's just one perhaps most of the perhaps thought through that as an option um what other options are there i think it's really interesting i was going to pick up on that point of um of the routine work and yeah you know we've had these discussions with the icb for some weeks ago around you know what what do you do when the pressure goes up and hospitals stop their routine work their elective work um and um and and when we asked earlier you know what what can general practice stop i think it was around in particularly in hampshire it was around proactive case management and a particular initiative that the um icb wanted to do we said what can you stop and they came back with the answer of well you can't stop everything and anything, anything because everything is important in general practice and i I think that is true. We we know that if we don't deal with the routine stuff, we're kind of storing it up for later. It doesn't it doesn't go away, um, and and we pay because 
people's conditions get worse because they're not they're not managed so we are in a we are in a really difficult place but i think the population is probably going to have to get used to waiting for primary care as well they're used to waiting for secondary care uh We've, we're under this current agenda from nationally that you know access is everything, but actually access isn't everything because you end up going round and round in circles because your problems aren't dealt with properly because you've got overstretched clinicians who are watching the clock and thinking, I've got another 30 patients to get through after this, so I'm going to do something that's quite quick to, to get you out of the door. And I don't have the time to actually listen to everything you said and therefore make the kind of the actual considered decision, which which may take a little bit longer, but actually would get you a resolution to your problem. Um, and I think patients know that as well. But it's going to be it's going to be a really difficult mindset change. I think people are beginning to get it. And I think um, Jenny's on this call um, who put out and was reflecting that she put something on Facebook saying, talking about the changes they were having to make. Um, and actually comments were getting more supportive. Um, so I think we're going to see some and the loudest will complain because they don't like it because why would you but actually I think there's a realisation of the difficult position that we're in um, and Hampshire ICB have come out and said we want you to switch to urgent which again it, at least they've said it I think there's a question of how much they can support it and we want them to support it and again will they get heard will the media want to pick that up and you know even if they do say it there's that how, how much can the system support us in making those difficult decisions? But they have at least said that's okay and realised the reality rather than I think nationally. And I looked at Richard there, certainly it feels like the local teams are supportive, but the will from higher on up is there is, there's nothing to see here. There is no problem. Um, so at least locally, they do seem to be acknowledging the problem. But Richard, I'd be really interested in your point of view, because that's that's certainly how it feels locally is our teams want to help us. But NHS England are not interested in any comms that re reflect reality um, and endorsing those and aren't really interested in helping. So I'd be really interested what you what it feels like in your meetings with NHS England. So um, yeah. I think broadly, yes, I agree that that is the case. So we wrote to NHS England last week asking them to um, pause COAF and IAF and any other non-urgent workload in order to actually help practices manage at the moment. And um, and they've declined. Yeah, um, I will just say, Richard, obviously this is recorded and this will be available on our website as well. So this is potentially public-facing. That's, 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 not, uh, that's not confidential. No, uh, so, <laughs> I know uh, that bit isn't. <laughs> uh, just so you're aware, <laughs> I, I do. I do quite often get into trouble for uh, <laughs> shooting from the hips. So that's a useful uh, one. Um, so, uh, you know, there are local flexibilities, and there is there is benefit to having those conversations. And obviously, you're you're establishing those relationships with your ICB, um, and and so I, I, one would hope that they would be supportive. Uh, there is a limit to what they can do because. NHS England ultimately hold the purse strings and and ultimately are um, uh, you know directing ICBs as to what they can and cannot do. Now uh, we continue to lobby NHS England. I'm meeting with them tomorrow um, in order, and this will this will be discussed further. Then, um, you know, I think there is some sense that actually, if they don't do something, general practice is going to collapse, if not is collapsing currently. Um, but um, it's it's whether we can get them to instigate some support quickly enough in order to make sure that um, practices get support right now. Because there's no point in saying that we'll make a change in March 
because quite frankly, there are likely to be practices that are not here in March if we carry on like this. I mean, I th- just to come back to a couple of the points that you, you were making just earlier, um, I think that um, prioritising what we do is really important and stripping out all the things that we don't have to do um, is really crucial at the moment. And, uh, you know, I, I often joke and I, I quote Zamo from Grange Hill and I say we, we, should, we need to just say no. Um, and we need to start. Um, so you're not smiling, Laura, because you're too young to get that. Um, uh, we uh, we need to um, we need to start pushing back on all those bits and pieces that we're asked to do. So as Andy was describing, all those bits from secondary care, social care, things like that, push them back. Use the letters that Wessex LMCs and all the LMCs produce. There's BMA templates as well. To push it back. There's ways of reporting these things, which is time consuming and frustrating, but it makes a difference eventually, and it do- and it can do it now. And, and with the sort of the triaging that we're all doing in our practices, stripping out those things that don't need to come to see us. So, the, you know, the, the bits and pieces are private work. I, you know, I, I, I would, um, you know, there's no chance that I would sign a form for somebody to go parachuting at the moment. I just haven't got time to do it. You know, get rid of, the, you know, the, all those kinds of forms and bits and pieces that are not statutory obligations. They, they gum up your system. They take your time. Why, why should we be doing those now? So pushing those kinds of things back. And the comms that you've described as well, that's a, um, a practice manager, uh, I think you were describing, who put something on Facebook um, for, for their practice. Our patients actually, I think, are starting to get it. They're getting that we're not sat there with our feet on our desk, twiddling our thumbs, looking for work to do. We are slogging our guts out at great personal detriment and actually getting the patients on side is really crucial because the, the one thing that politicians care about is votes and actually the nhs is not a vote winner for uh, for any of the parties at the moment and so getting them on side about this that can instigate change um and if you if when you're ch- when you're making changes to the services that you provide talk to your ppg talk to them communicate with them because when they ca- they get on your side then they can be your most powerful advocate and that is really crucial thanks Richard. i think andy did you want to come back in there yeah i just said a few things I totally support your um, idea of using a scarce resource efficiently. I think a lot of our inefficiency is because we're doing other people's jobs. But when you talk about the private type work, I can't afford to stop doing those bits of private work now because I've been given a 2.1% uplift and I've got staff uplift that I've got to meet uh, year on year. And if I don't subsidize my NHS income with that private work now, then I don't take an income home as a partner. So, you know, to say that we stop those little bits of private work, I think is kind of missing the point. We're doing so much of other NHS or social care work that needs to be really pushed back and say, no, this isn't our job. And, you know, so much of what we've been doing, talking about, about occupational health, we should have no role in occupational health assessment or sick note um, uh, issuing because that's not the role of primary care and that needs to be removed from a straightaway and that would significantly reduce the number of appointments that that get taken up i think just talking about as laura said there's a willingness of the public to wait to see a hospital doctor we've got to be realistic here and say if you want us to meet urgent care demand at the moment there's going to be a waiting list to see a gp for for routine care uh, and I would echo one of the things that's been put in the chat. This is not just about doctors. This is about the entire practice team. Our reception staff are working in unimaginable 
um, hours in the face of just horrific demand uh, and abuse and unhappy patients. And similarly, our secretarial teams are, are constantly bombarded with unhappy patients that either can't get through to the hospital or chasing uh, appointments. Uh, and that's making uh, our other team members' morale really drop uh, and people leave the practices as well. And, and so, you know, as I said, this is a whole team and a whole system problem. And just the one final thing around respiratory, someone mentioned about having um, uh, a pediatric hub. So there is national funding for ICBs to be setting up respiratory hubs. As usual, it's painfully slow and probably by the time they're set up, it will be woefully late. But there, there are, I know that each ICB now is mandated to invest in setting up a respiratory hub to manage acute respiratory illness within the community. Whether we'll see that in time, um, for the early new year remains to be seen, but I think there's about £100 million worth of investment there. Just before anybody else, thank you, and anybody else comes in, just for the sake of the audio podcast, if people obviously can't see the chat, I'd just like to um, just just let people know that there's obviously it's one of the practice funders said there's going to be an, they're going to publish an open letter to patients which outlines unsafe practice and leads them to change their ways and just realizing things are new and also recording something on their phone message to reflect that and i would just say within our organization we've talked about what safe is and actually if you just compare it to an airline pilot they're only allowed to sort of fly for so many hours then they take a break hgv driver only drive for so many hours then takes a break i think it's easier for patients to understand i certainly found it easier to understand the concept of safer working when I put it in that context. Um, admin pressures, um, exactly as you were saying, Andy. Um, also, a comment, it's got to be the other end of the spectrum, reducing the demand to start with. So health education in schools, communities, other places to equip patients. Um, and then just one of the practices have invited the Dorset Care Record team in to monitor contacts for a week. So hopefully just sort of spreading the word. And then one more contact, one with just more comment about so the difficulties if the doctors are pushing back the person that might be in the middle of that is the receptionist or the practice manager to explain it and which is a comment um, just a comment that you made Andy so I just wanted to fill, fill everybody in with that um, and Richard would you like to come back then I think Laura wanted to come in with something yeah thank you so so that, that point about our um, administrative and, and uh, reception colleagues being on the front line I absolutely acknowledge that um, and uh, if we are going to put them in a position where they're saying no on practice's behalf then that communication in ahead of that is really important. So getting getting the uh, getting uh, the updates out to patients by whatever whatever means necessary. So they because general practice has changed dramatically in the last two years. And I don't think that's been particularly well subsidised, uh, well communicated to, uh, by NHS England. Uh, a couple of points, Randy. So private work, yeah, I take that point. And yes, it's maybe you know little bits and pieces around the edge. Only comment I would say about that is make sure your your prices are up to date. And, uh, and you're uh, adequately remunerated for your time if you're going to be doing that kind of thing. Occupational health, removing that from general practice conference policy, um, that's not going to happen before Christmas, I'm afraid. Uh, that's a sort of a long-term outcome. Um, I'm good, but not that good. Uh, waiting lists. So this, so uh, there's a discussion in the um, Safer Working document which is on the BMA website. I've updated it again this last week. I'm doing some videos over the next couple of days as well. Um, there's some stuff on waiting lists there. I've got a very long document which is going through legal at the moment um, about waiting lists, which I'm going to get out just after Christmas. Uh, and it's a real, really good how-to guide. Um, and the hubs, uh, it's not 100 million, it's 40 million, unfortunately. Um, and uh, and that's not good enough. Um, and it is, um, it's all fishing from the same pool. We haven't got 
the staff to go and populate a new hub. You know, we we want to put the money into practices to actually support practices in order to be able to do this so that we can recruit, recruit and retain, have something which is sustainable and doesn't, doesn't pop up for a couple of weeks over winter and then get shut down again and then have a third of the cost in setting up again the next winter. Uh, but this is this is a, a constant discussion. Thank you, Richard. And just before Laura comes in, there's just been a question from the floor. Can we have a standardised open letters to patients regarding unsafe practice? Is that part of the toolkit that you've got, Richard, on the BMA website? So we're looking to develop that, yeah. Okay, that would be, be good. Um, Laura? Yeah, so the ARIs, as they're getting called, these acute respiratory hub places um, in Hampshire, they are getting stood up. And I think some of them are getting stood up this week, but the capacity is very small because, again, they're actually dependent on kind of individual practitioners. I think you can tell that from kind of the hours they're getting offered. They're often one or two days and they're often sort of 12 appointments um, morning and afternoon, which fits with safe working, which is what we've just described. Um, but means that actually when you've got four or five or more practices feeding into each one, then that capacity doesn't go very far and I think the model is that that they have to still be triaged by somebody to go into that uh, so again it, we'll see we'll see how useful they are but that's where the money is that is where the money is so um, that's where we get that's where the ICBs are going with it um, we have secured a cough and IIF protection across Hampshire and Isle of Wight um, area uh, we've got something similar sort of in Dorset but it's got rag rating and we haven't totally bottomed it out and be SW, which our other area have gone for something which again we're still trying to bottom out exactly what they mean but they're talking about quarter four protection um so we're we're working on everybody we we like Hampshire and Isle of Wight's uh, support best thank you very much Hampshire and Isle of Wight um but uh, we're working with the others again recognizing what their constraints um as Andy has said they're not funded for this and, and you've said Richard they're not being supported by this nationally um so they are in a difficult position but we are we are explaining the position very clearly to them about where general practice is and they do really, really need to support it in any way they can. Um, in letters to patients, I think uh, whoever was talking about writing that open letter, there's a number of practices that are doing that. So you're not alone in beginning to do that. Um, and again, I think it's about, we've, it's a tough thing to say to our patients, but we just have to share so that they understand. Um, I think it's an interesting thing, isn't it? I stood, I stood in an airport recently and I stood in a huge queue for Costa and I could see the queue um, and people were willing to stand in that queue for their cup of coffee. I think one of the difficulties we face with general practice is there is no visible queue. It's one of the pieces of feedback we're hearing is people go in and the waiting rooms are quite empty. So we're not that busy. We have a queue and it's on the phone and then it's in people's homes and they're spread out. But in hospital, if you go into A&E, the waiting room is full and therefore people know that they are busy. And it's that, it's that whole kind of mind thing of being able to see the busyness um, that almost the way we're working counts against us um, but I think we have to explain it to, uh, to people and on that note we, we are doing that on your behalf um, so some of you may have seen uh, that uh, I was on the IT, the local ITV news uh, on Friday evening explaining the fundamental problem which is really that between uh, demand and workforce um, and that mismatch that we've got um, and uh, and we uh, also so we I explained that and 
one message was don't blame the GPs. Uh, I'm afraid I couldn't get all staff in there. So I came away always wishing that you've said something slightly different. Um, I very much have the rest of the staff in my mind um, and uh, I missed that a bit off my sentence. Um, and also we directed people towards Healthier Together as well um, as a port of call, again, trying to, trying to um, uh, mitigate that demand uh, around strep A and trying to get people to reassure. And we've also had a piece in the uh, Dorset Echo as well, talking around heightened demand as well um, from that press release we did. So thank you, thank Laura. You. Can I just just clarify one thing that you said? Mm. So IIF, we haven't been informed. Only Quaff has been confirmed. So in three people have come in about in the Hampshire practices. Can you just confirm by IIF protection? and quaff protection, because there's obviously a little bit of confusion there. So I don't know if you can come back in and just confirm that, or we can come back later. She's just check looks like she's just checking everybody, so we will come back on that. Um, Andy? Yeah, just to, just to get back on the press statement that we, we put out, so that was in response to existing unprecedented demand then exacerbated by group a strep and just to reassure you that press statement went to every single media outlet that we have any um into say bbc itv all of the local newspapers local radio uh and on the back of that obviously laura was invited to interview him. i think we also got some coverage in basingstoke in their newspaper but we are trying to engage with the media as much as possible realizing that it's not always that easy and we have to be careful what type of message we put out, but you know, we're trying to put the, a message out that, that this is unprecedented pressure. We're a scarce resource. We realize patients are scared. There are ill people out there that need to be seen, but we can only deal with what we can deal with, with the workforce that we have. So that's a constant message that we'll be putting out on your behalf. Thank you. Um, Andy, so let me know, Laura, when you, oh, are you ready, ready. to come back? I'm, yeah, I'm ready. ready. Good, fantastic, thank you. So it is only quaff. It is only quaff for Hampshire and Isle of Wight. We're pleased with that. But I'm doing subliminal messaging to the uh, anybody from the ICB who's <laughs> listening that we'd like IAF as well. And we are also going back about LCSs as well. So um, it is quaff only. Apologies. I got too overexcited on, on how far we've got thank there. You. But thank you. It's fantastic that you're listening and that you came with the questions. And that's why we do this live webinar, because it's going to be really helpful. LCSs, LCSs are protected in Dorset, um, not IIF. Good. Okay, that's fine. Anybody else want to add anything on that? I think I think that's kind of sorted that one out. Um, I just wonder whether we probably need to round this up. We've got a few other things we wanted to talk about. So, just Richard, I don't want to put you on the spot, but I kind of do want to put you on the spot. Just just in case you could help. There's just a question that's come in, and it's something going through my mind. It's something we were talking just before the webinar. Does anyone know what the light is at the end of the tunnel? It'd be really helpful to have something to hold on to. So, so people leaving this webinar, can we have something positive? Can you sort of just suggest anything? I know the work's coming, but as you said, it's not going to happen before Christmas. That was occupational health and these things aren't going to happen before March. But what can we do now? What is there now that we can say, OK, maybe it could be this? So I think the light at the end of the tunnel is that actually the NHS is really built upon general practice. And even politicians at their most daft do realise that our nation cannot cope with that general practice. And whilst they might be willfully neglecting us, they are starting to realise that they are going to need to make changes. Now, we, so GPC, um, we were hoping to have been in negotiations with NHS England for some time, but because of changes in government and, uh, you know, going through a Secretary of State a week, um, we have not been in negotiations with them yet. But 
come April, so April 23, I'm expecting to have substantive changes which will support general practice through 23-24. In the meantime, we are working at damnedest to make sure that there will be supportive changes that are made by NHS England, which will be rolled out across the country, to make sure that we can look after our patients and we can look after ourselves and each other. And and I mean from from everybody in the practices, from, from GPs, from partners, from sessional GPs, locums, practice managers, administrators, everybody is supported to work in general practice. And whether that be from resourcing, uh, money, or whether it be changes in what we are doing and how we are working. But I can promise you that myself and the rest of the officer team and everybody in BMA are sweating blood like you do at Wessex LMCs to make sure that we support our practices so that we can support our patients. And none of us are going down without a fight here. Thank you, Richard. That's really, really helpful. Um, and one of the, just go back to one of the comments that we had earlier about distress within the team. There are the health and wellbeing hubs. They're funded till at least the end of March. If they, they, we were, we're fighting that, that they will stay. But do remember that it's not up to you as individuals, the practice managers on the team, to actually emotionally support and lots not to stress people it is exhausting to do that we completely realize that but the health and well-being help they both do everybody but there's lots of support out there so please don't feel you have to hold all of that as well as all the other things you're doing um so i think we'll probably round that up we could probably talk about this for a long time richard thank you so much it's been so nice to talk to you we will talk to you again um you're very welcome to stay on the call um laura andy you're very welcome to stay on we're going to rattle through some other things now if you'd like to stay fabulous if not then you we would say thank you and Merry Christmas and off again. So oh, I think we're going to... Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a lovely Christmas. Thank Hello. you so much. Take care. Okay. So um, that was fantastic. Thank you, everybody, for getting involved in that. And a nice comment, um, Andy, for you there. Um, Andy's comments earlier hit the nail on the head. So thank you so much. Um, that's been really useful. So, okay. Um, Dawn, I think we're coming to you now for something about Strep A, please. Lovely. Thanks, Louise. Uh, Yes, it's just a short message this week. You may be aware that the UK HSA, previously uh, called Public Health, um, they have put out a press release saying that after analysis, um, it seems that the nasal uh, spray vaccine that offers protection to children against flu may also help reduce the rate of strep A infection. And of course, this may cause a rise in parents asking you perhaps for their two to three year olds to be vaccinated against the flu. So it's just a question of being aware that you may get a few more queries or requests for the young young children, two to three year olds, um, to actually have the flu vaccine. Lovely. Thank you, Dawn. Andy? It just... uh, the statement was perfectly timed, wasn't it, uh, on the last day of school? <clears throat> so there's because their statement also says that school aged children they should contact either their school, their school nurse, or their doctor. Well, obviously the schools are shut now. So what happens to school aged children? The, the school aged IM teams are working separately in some sort of mop up clinics, Andy. Um, and I know public health have been talking to them um, about, um, you know, picking up some of these extra children that might not have previously had it. Um, how easy it's going to be to access those over the school holidays, I don't know. And there's plenty so, of stock. We've been reassured there's plenty of stock. So there is. There should practices be redirecting school aged children back to the schools when they resume? I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that. Not sure, Andy. Okay. Not sure about that one. Um, oh, Andy, I think your comments gone down really well. Um, just that you've really touched a lot of us. 
um, and said what possibly GPs are feeling but don't voice. Um, yes, and everyone's hoping you have a really good day on Friday. <laughs> Thank you for that comment. Okay, Michelle, um, penicillin. Thanks, Louise. So this is, um, again, relating to penicillin for strep A. Really just wanted to highlight to um, to everybody that pharmacists are able to supply an alternative penicillin to treat strep A. Strep a. So um, usually when a patient presents with a prescription to a pharmacy, by law, they have to supply what's on the prescription. However, um, if the medicine wasn't available or isn't available, they then have to be um, asked to return to the practice or the prescriber for it to be reissued. However, being mindful of all the issues that um, everybody uh, practices are facing in relation to um, prescriptions, uh, particularly for strep A, they have issued a serious shortage protocol, so uh, which allows pharmacists to be able to prescribe an alternative um, medicine. There are three particular um, uh, penicillins that are uh, associated with this. I won't I won't even try to read them because I know I'll get them wrong. Um, but with the podcast, we'll list those um, so that practices are aware of what they are, uh, what they are. Lovely. Thank you, Michelle. Um, Lisa Colchain. Um, thanks, Louise. Just briefly, it's just a reminder um, to people. Um, I, I know um, there's a lot of talk about power outages um, potentially happening in January. We are talking to the ICBs about that. Um, so just a reminder, I'm sure you already have done, it was to check your call, um, practice cold chain policy, um, which should have some detail around your vaccine fridges, and how you monitor them. Um, uh, we've also updated our lunch and learn on emergencies and business continuity to reflect um, an element around power outages. And there is a useful number 105, if people aren't aware, where you can check details on power outages by your area. So it might be worth making a note of that number if you haven't done already. Thank you, Lisa. And what the 105 number will tell you who you're um, about your electricity supply, because people, it's not always who you pay the bills to that are supplying your electricity. So actually that, that 105 number is helpful. Those of you who might not know what the lunch and learns are, they're just some very, very simple, straightforward resources we have written. So there is a PowerPoint presentation and a script about some of the really useful things that might, you might find handy to be doing for flu. And um, this is one in emergencies and business continuity. And we've done them for, um, chaperoning, that sort of thing. So something that you can do with your team, team leader can to use the script, go through the PowerPoint, and it's just something helpful for the team. You can do it as many times as you like. Andy? I'm just going just gonna to answer my question about where children should have flu jabs. So six months until two years GP surgery with a long-term condition, two years until child starts primary school GP surgery. All children at primary school should be having it at school. So I would refer those children back to the school nursing team. Uh, some secondary school-aged children in eligible groups should be delivered through the school nursing team service. Children in eligible school group, groups says school or GP surgery, so they're children with long-term health conditions. Uh, and then children are, who are homeschooled or not in mainstream education, community clinic. That's from the NHS website. Fantastic. Thank you very much. I think that's really helpful. Um, Dawn, something quick about um, children arriving from Ukraine. Yes, it's just a, another little update, Louise. Um, so again, uh, UKHSA have updated their recommendations for TB testing in children arriving from the Ukraine. Um, that We'll put a link with the podcast um, if you want to have a look at that um, for anything that is relevant to any children you may be seeing uh, coming into your surgeries. But just to say that, yeah, the recommendations have been updated. Fantastic. Thank you, Dawn. Um, Michelle, there's a survey, I think. 
Yes, thanks, Louise. So I'm going to so just wanted to highlight that um, from January, the GP patient survey will be launching again, and it's there for it will be in place for three months. I think just thinking about all the things that we've been talking about on this webinar uh, and the impact that that may then have on the survey, we are considering as an LMC about what support we can um, offer if you were to um, publicise the fact that the survey is available. And um, we're just currently looking at that now that should be available in our newsletter, really to try and present a balanced view about what actually what actually is happening in general practice to help with um, patients reflecting on how they complete that that survey. Thank you, Michelle. And um, there's another survey. Um, I feel sort of slightly nervous saying this because I don't know how, whether you've got time to fill these in or not. I suspect not. But just to let you know, there is another survey coming out. Um, this is all about um, retention and recruitment and workforce and um, how useful the introduction of the new roles has been to you in general practice um, and what sort of awareness there is to the health and wellbeing initiative. So if you do have um, the chance, I think that would be a useful thing to fill in. But again, we, we do know um, time is absolutely um, not on your side. Um, Lisa, I think we're coming to you for the last one. Thanks, Louise. Um, just to make people aware, in case they're not already, there's a new service whereby um, patients can update their postal addresses using the NHS app. Um, so their new details will be automatically synced with GP systems. And the intention is that that should help reduce burden on NHS staff and improve the PDS data quality. Um, if you're interested in enabling the service, there is a um, an email address and some details which we can put in the chat and alongside the podcast recording. Um, just to say that when patients update their address, it's not immediate. Um, the update flows to the practice for confirmation. So at that point, the practice can undertake their usual check and deal with it as appropriate. Um, there are a couple of good documents on the NHS Futures platform that include a flowchart which sets out the process in more detail. And again, we can attach that to the podcast recording on the website. Thank you very much, Lisa. Um, so we've come to the end um, of the things we had on our agenda. And obviously, we talked about lots of things today. Um, thank you for all your questions. I think what might be helpful is um, possibly other members of your team might like to listen to the discussion we had with Richard and Laura and Andy. So GPs might be interested to hear that discussion. So we might be able to truncate that as it's a recording for you to sort of offer out um, for others to listen within your team. I think that might be quite helpful. And this will clearly be an ongoing conversation. So many, many thanks um, to Laura and Andy, to Lisa and Michelle and Dawn and thank you all of you who are listening um, or watching and have a lovely Christmas and we will see you again back in the new year on the 4th of January. Thank you very much everybody. Bye-bye. Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. <laughs>